Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Women Your Mother Warns You About, brought to you by Sales Gravy and SalesGravy.University. And by the time you're listening to this, it is we're close to the holidays. And some of you are struggling. You're like, I can't get deals. No one's answering the phone. Yes, you can. They're around and they're in a good mood because it's the holidays. So if you are struggling, I highly recommend that you go to salesgravy.university. We have nearly 300 courses. I've got some cool courses there and you can get the skills that you need to overcome all these things. But let's move on to our guest today. I'm super excited to have someone here today that I had the opportunity and and privilege to see him speak on a stage I was also speaking on and loved his energy, loved what he had to talk about. And I always love to talk to other speakers because we're all a little bit different in what we do. And I wanted to bring him on the show today. And today I am welcoming Chuck Gallagher to the women your mother warned you about. Welcome to the show, Chuck. Thanks. Hey, listen, I got to tell you something. This is really cool, right? Because I don't know that I've ever been on a show with a more creative title that is more wonderful and provocative. So this is going to be exciting. I'm just jazzed. <laughs> oh, I love that, Chuck. Thank you, Chuck. Chuck, well, I'm going to ask you about this because it was provocative. So when you hear the title, Women Your Mother Warned You About, what what did that make you think? Well, okay. So number one, it probably made me think about women who are powerful in their own right, women who know what they want, go after what they want, and functionally aren't willing to take an immediate no for an answer. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun. Good. Awesome. I love it. It should be fun. It should be fun. And you're fun. So let's talk about you. Just give our listeners and our viewers just a little bit about who is Chuck Gallagher and what does he do? Well, I I was going to say, I was going to come you up can. with you can. weird, but no, we won't do that. The reality of it is I am uh, a VP in a public company today. I am a professional speaker, predominantly on ethics and AI. Two separate topics, not necessarily together. Mm -hmm. They could be. And I also happen to own a video production company. So I am in my office at the video production company studio. This is not where we shoot video. It's at least I've got the Beatles behind me and I'm like, go Beatles. I love it. Okay. So I told you, you never know what's going to happen on this show. Like I got a plan, but I don't got a plan. I'm just going to start with the first question that comes to my mind because I'm like a curious child. How do you do all these things? How do you manage all of these things that you just described? Okay, that's a really cool question, Gina. So here's the deal. I believe that everybody has certain gifts, just things that we are innately good at. We don't necessarily know as young people what those gifts are. Okay, so I'm going to answer your question this way. When I was a kid, I sold potholders door to door. I made a record album when I was 16, didn't have any money, lived in the projects, but I was good at selling. I could get other people's money together to create an outcome that I was looking for. And I'll never forget the local paper wrote this article and said, don't know if he has any career in music, but he definitely does in sales. So one gift is sales. Okay. The other is I started in college as a music major, voice. I wanted to perform, be Elton John. They said, teach, perform, teach. And I figured apparently I've got no talent. So screw that. I went into accounting because I was not going to be a poor musician. Oh my gosh. But 
I clearly like the idea of vocal performance today. Instead of singing, I'm speaking, which actually pays more. And last to that is I've always been creative. So if you take uh, performance, creativity, and sales and mix it together, every I, now looking back over many years, and as you can tell, the color of my hair is, well, white, I guess at this point. But if you look back over all those years, every job I've ever had, I have somehow turned into an expression, a vocal expression using creativity that involves sales. So today, VP in a public company in sales and marketing, my job is to keep our primary client, the biggest client we have, happy. That doesn't mean I have to sit in an office every day. It means I need to be creative in meeting their needs. Because I don't have to sit in an office every day, I have the privilege of being able to work in a video production company that gives me a creative outlet that allows me to record videos for the speaking business that I'm in and that every company knows I am in. So if you want me as your employee, so to speak, you've got to give me massive flexibility to go and speak where I'm invited. So that's the long answer to a very short question. Hey, I, I love it. And I like asking questions like this that might not be expected. Number one, because it always elicits a story. And that story is always interesting and powerful. And that gave me an opportunity to, to learn even more about you that I love because just like you, I am a creative. I've got a performance background. Sales was not what I thought I would end up in. But when you think about it, everything that we're doing to influence people is sales. And the studies show that the salespeople who have a creative background or are actually putting their creativity in play because we were all actually born creative, but we lose it. When we put it in play and we are practicing it and mastering it, this is what makes us so powerful from a sales perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Gina, you said something which I think is really interesting because we're born creative and we are, and then we lose it. And it's like, but we're in a weird space right now with artificial intelligence takes away the mundane of what you have to do and opens up the possibilities that the childlike creative can just come out because we're not stuck with having to do the just typing every single word or whatever it happens to be. So I think it's going to be a renaissance of creativity because yes. you get unshackled from the hard stuff that most people just are mindlessly not excited about doing. Yes. And I want to thank you for the AI talk that you gave that I heard you speak at because I, I was like, I'm not jumping into that pool. What's that pool? What's that pool? But you presented in in such a way then I'm like, mm, and then I was sitting with a mutual friend of ours, Cynthia Barnes, and then she started like showing me things. We weren't ignoring you, by the way. She was as you were talking, she was like, and look what this can do. And look what this every time you would talk about something new. And then she was showing me things like here, I'm going to take a blog and I'm going to say, do it in Gina Tremarco's voice. And then like all these things that I was like, my mind was rushing. And then there, there are the schools that thought right now, I think there is a happy medium, but there are are schools that thought right now of like how AI could hurt us in some ways as far as 
people are now jumping on this AI bandwagon. Well, we're just going to have AI write all of our emails and write all of our telephone scripts and fully rely on that, which I don't think you can fully rely on it. You can take some of it to your point. I can get rid of the mundane part of that. And then I have something that I can play and mold and turn it into something that much better, that much quicker. But it cannot be it cannot be the cure. I agree. It's not the cure. It's a tool. It's yeah. just any tool that's come along. I think in the presentation, I, I may have made the comment. It's like an automobile. In 1900, when everybody rode a horse, you could saddle a horse, bridle a horse, you rode a horse, because that's how you got from point A to point B. When the car automobile came out, it was like, well, I, that's just for the rich folks. And it'll never And Well, of course, today, everybody has an automobile. And nobody, unless you're an equestrian, knows how to saddle or bridle a horse. Give me a horse and tell me to ride it. Chuck is had a pretty problem. I'd rather be in my electric vehicle that I can turn on cruise and functionally know it will drive for me. Or if there's automo- auto- almost an accident, which, by the way, happened the other day, it recognized it before I could and stopped. So there are things about it that are wonderful. But just like a car is wonderful, it also can be used as a deadly uh, item. Somebody drives it into a crowd of protesters. So anything can be used for bad. The question is, what is our motivation in using it in the first place? Yeah, I love that. So in sharing that story, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit because your story, when I asked just that simple question, right? I'm fascinated by the fact that you're juggling all the things. And I think this is a really good story because salespeople in particular or business owners and entrepreneurs feel this sense of struggle of like, how do I do all the things? How do I balance all of the things? And I think it's quite interesting, right? You're a VP of a company. You've got a video production company. You speak, right? All of those things. But how do you navigate having an employer who is like, yeah, cool, go do your own video thing. Go, Oh, cool, go and speak. Because I think that is a skill set in itself to actually build trust, to win people over, to be like, yeah, you can do all those things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And okay, so let's do this for just a second. I'm going to go back uh, further, okay? Let me go back further and say, Back in the 80s, I was a tax partner in a CPA firm. I testified before Congress, wrote articles in national magazines, et cetera. But I was stupid. I was living beyond my means, robbing Peter to pay Paul, a.k.a. I couldn't pay all my bills. And I eventually embezzled money from a client. That's, by the way, Gina, really a dumb thing to do. Let me just share with everybody. So for those listening, don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it because I, I'm pretty sure I've read up on Chuck. He is a felon. Don't do it. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's your stories. So I I found a way for you to tell it without me asking. Yeah, not, not a problem. So, right. Don't do it. But I did. And I did it again and again, just like people speed in their automobiles. You get accustomed to it. You just do it because you don't think there's going to be a consequence. Oh, my goodness, Gina, there's always a consequence. Always. Every, t- every choice has a consequence. So. Eventually, that crashed. I lost my license. I paid everybody back. The local DA didn't want to prosecute, but the federal government did. (laughs) I deserved it. So on October 2nd, 1995, I walked my happy butt into federal prison. Well, actually, it wasn't happy that day. I'll just tell you, just to be clear. But I walked myself into federal prison, became 11642058. That is my inmate account number, like my social security number. 
You'll never forget it. Once you have one, get one, just saying. But here's the point to all of that. It's not what happened. It's what happened following. Because the choices we make have consequences, but your history does not create your destiny. So my history is I'm a convicted felon. But when I got out, the first job I had was selling cemetery property door to door. Yeah. Death and taxes. I used to be a tax partner, screwed up taxes, figured I'd better try death. Why not? (laughs) Plus, everybody breathing was a potential client. And I'm like, I like clients. I'm just saying. Now, here's the thing. No matter what it is we do, you need to be the best at it. If you're mediocre, you're never going to get anywhere. So I knew as a convicted felon that if they were going to downsize or right size or whatever you want to call it, I would be the first to go. So I needed to be the best salesperson they had because if I wasn't, bye. But if I was, it would be awfully difficult to get rid of me. So in nine months, I became the top salesperson in a four-state region. And over time, they said, well, could you teach other people to do this? And I said, yeah, let me hire a bunch of convicts and we can. No, I didn't say that really. (laughs) Convicts are good employees because we don't, we, we go come to work every day. We need to. Anyway, I said, sure, I believe I could do that. And I applied the same principles. Now, over time, that led me to being a VP in a public company. But all of that, it goes back to something you said, Gina, was based on trust. I have always been transparent about who I am. I cannot change my past. I can't change the 80s or the 90s. I can just be the best in 2023 that I can be. But if I am willing to be transparent and trustworthy. What that earns me then is the right for the public company to say, we give you flexibility and leeway because we trust that what we have hired you to do, you will do. That's critical. Yeah, a big time. But I think that's also about, it's not just about your transparency and you putting that all out there. I think that's also about the culture of that organization and that leadership to be open and willing to do that. It is. And I'll, and I'll say this. I have been a VP of two, two public companies. Both of them knew my past. I was laid it out on the line because I never wanted that to be an issue. But I will also say in both companies, I had proven my worth. So they may have a policy against hiring convicted felons, but every policy can have an exception if the value you bring is worthy of the potential exception. Now, the funny thing I'm going to say to you is the the largest client that we have is worth $140 million worth of revenue to us in a given year. That client would not hire me as an employee to do that same job in-house, which is fine because I would make so much less money than I would if they hire our company and we become the largest client for our organization. So sometimes what seems to be a negative can turn into a positive. And I like to always look for the positives that are there. I love it. I love it. That is a great story. Thank you for sharing that with me. So so let's pivot over into Here's this felon who has, and by the way, let me say this, as you were telling that story, I just want to share this kind of, 
ironic, I don't know what we would call it. So I started as an accounting major and was not good at math, which which caused me to think about it twice. And I happened to start taking improv comedy classes while I was in college, which was the tipping point for me to actually change my major to journalism and sent me down a different trajectory. So now that I see the path you went on, I'm sort of happy that I did not go into accounting as a struggling artistic person. So that's... I get it. I totally get it. And look, let me just tell you, I sucked as an accountant. I didn't care if it balanced. It was not relevant to me, but I could, I could, I was great at promotion. I was great at doing seminars. I was great at speaking and I could bring the clients in and then turn it over to technocrats who just loved it with things balanced. And I'm like, I'm so glad you do because I so don't. That is awesome. So now let's talk a little bit about uh, business ethics. And this is something that you talk about and go into companies and talk about and, and get on a stage and talk about. So I find it interesting. We go from this felon background to a business ethics background. Tell us a little bit more about that. What does that look like? Well, in 2006, I was a senior VP of sales and marketing public company. And somebody came up to me and they said, Chuck, how can you be a senior VP in a public company and a convicted felon? Like those two things could not exist. Off the top of my head, I said, well, every choice has a consequence. Made bad choices in the 80s, sent me to federal prison in the 90s. Made better choices, and today I'm a senior VP. They said, you should talk about that. Well, that's a really dandy idea. So I went to a lady in Dallas, Texas, where I was living. She ran a speaker's bureau, and she was kind enough to listen to what I did. And she said, tell me, what do you speak on? I said, choices and consequences. Her response was, that's great. You'll never get hired, but that's really good. Like you'll never get hired. What do you mean? She said, nobody searches for that. If you are selling yourself or something, you've got to search for something that people want to buy. She said, you're an ethics speaker. I'm like, I've done unethical things. What in the world? She said, that's why you're an ethics speaker. Because you can talk about how smart people do dumb things and how to prevent it. Well, son of a gun, wasn't that some really good advice? So the the term ethics is a searchable term, a viable term. So if you're in sales, what you have has got to be something somebody's looking for, because if they're not looking for it, they don't need it in their mind. But if it's searchable and viable, then the question is, now, how do you package that so uniquely that the people who are buying want to buy you? That's how it happens. Okay. I love that. Well, when we look at sales in general, right, so often salespeople get, they cling on to, here is the widget that I'm selling, and it's this thing with these features versus what the customer really wants, which right. are the benefits, the outcomes, right? The outcomes of, of an ethical business and what that's going to mean for us is going to be what's important. So when you go into businesses, tell us a little bit more about what you do as far as what are some of the things that come up for businesses when it comes to business ethics? Because I'm, I'm totally, this is all new to me. So teach it to me like I'm a fifth grader. 
Well, first thing, everybody thinks they're ethical. They're not. That's a problem. Yep. So when I go in, first thing, when I walk in an orange jumpsuit and handcuffs, just for the fear, sheer joy of freaking everybody out so they'll pay attention. Once we get into that, I will typically ask four questions. How many people would voluntarily choose to do something unethical? Gina, rarely does anyone raise their hand because I would not do that. Can't imagine that. Number two, do you think that voluntarily breaking the law is unethical? Now, most people would raise their hand and say, yeah, if you walked into Wall CVS and just decided to go to the makeup counter and load a thing, bag full of stuff and walk out the door because the chances they're going to run after you is like slim today, which is weird. Yeah. Most people would say that's unethical. Okay, good. Third question. How many of you have driven on the interstate highways in the past two weeks? Okay. Everybody raise their hand. And then some people like you start to smile because they know the next question is, and how many of you exceeded the speed limit by five to 10? And then everybody raises hands. All right. Here's the point. The reality is most people think they're ethical and most people think that breaking the law is unethical, but it is easy to make unethical choices when those choices are socially acceptable. It is socially acceptable to get into our car, which will exceed the speed limit because we need to go from point A to point B and to rationalize that, well, as long as we're only going five to 10 over, we're not going to get caught. And therefore it's okay to break the law or do something that perhaps could create a negative consequence for us because, gosh, everybody does it. Well, if everybody steals from their employer, does that make it right? If every employee went to work one day and decided to spend three hours on their cell phone looking at TikTok videos and scrolling social media and only worked five hours but expected to get paid eight, is that ethical? And when you start to think about it that way, then you start to raise the question of, okay, what is it that people do that might put them on the slippery slope of making some dumb choices? And sometimes the slippery slope happens to be a blank diamond slope at Telluride in Colorado in the wintertime, and you start sliding down that puppy, and if you can't ski well, you're going to end up on the side of a tree like I ended up in federal prison. How does it happen? What do we look for? How do we prevent it? That's what I talk. Okay. What are some of the things that companies should be looking for? Because I think when you talk about being on TikTok for three hours, an employee would say, well, I didn't know I couldn't be on TikTok, right? I'm sure that's something that you hear. But what are some of the things that companies should be looking for? Well, interesting. There's three primary triggers that we have as human beings. I I talk really a lot about human behavior, but there's three Okay, let me back up a second. This is going to be a little brain science, okay? I love brain science, yes. Okay, good. I'm glad you do. Brain science. We think, cognitively, we think from the frontal cortex. Mm -hmm. By the way, it doesn't truly develop until about 26 or 27. So if you've got like teenage kids or in college and they think you're stupid, it's natural because it hasn't fully developed. When they're 40, they'll look back and say, "Mm, mom was smart. But at a certain age, you're dumb. Anyway. But the reality is, if there is a financial trigger in our life, okay, somebody loses a job, there's a big recession or whatever it happens to be. But if there's a financial trigger, if there is a relationship trigger, um, husband and wife divorce, whatever it happens to be, you have a 15-year-old errant child that is just giving you heck, 
uh, or if it's a health issue. But those three things, now there's subs to all of that, but those are the three primary triggers that could happen in a person's life that might, is the operative word, cause them to make a really bad choice. So what do we look for? What's going on in the lives of our employees Mm -hmm. that might cause them to fall off of the ethical turnip truck? And I hate to put it this way because there are people out there, I can hear it now. Well, what about my privacy? Well, let me just tell you, if you're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, now X, why X, I don't know, whatever. But if you're on social media and you don't make your post private, then it's public, which means you've given everybody the opportunity to look and see exactly what's taking place. And I can tell you that if I know someone is facing a challenge, it does not mean they will be unethical, but it means they may be tempted to make an unethical choice to quickly solve a problem. And if we can, as organizations, think about that, it changes our perspective. I'll give you a, a really quick example, Gina. I'm running on here. No, but I love it. I love it. There was a, a fairly large company I was doing some work for, and they made the comment to me. They said, we lock our um, office supply cabinet in August and September. And I was like, two months. Huh. Why two months? That's kind of weird. Now, obviously, I haven't had young children for a while, and they said back to school. Yep. Because if school starts on a Tuesday and it's Monday and you haven't gotten the back to school supplies and you get off at five and it's like, oh, my God, I've got to drive six miles across town in heavy traffic right in after work time, go to Staples to try to buy this stuff. I'll just get it from the supply cabinet. And on Saturday, when I go to Staples, I'll just put it back next Monday. Well, what they found was it wasn't that they were employing a covey of thieves. It was just convenient to solve a problem. So when they locked the supply cabinet in August and September, the amount of supplies that were lost decreased by 28%. And it wasn't, again, that they had a bunch of thieves. It was just simply the matter of they changed the circumstances so that behavior that seemed irrelevant wasn't available. And if you eliminate the availability of it, the probability is people will just have to go to Staples and buy the supplies or send the kid without them. I think it's really interesting because it some of this really does come down to observation within the culture and within the leadership. Because when you talk to when you talk about the the three triggers, these are things that are common triggers, right? It's not they're not uncommon triggers. Like we all go through things. Sure. But from a leadership perspective, number one, if you actually pay attention to your people and you're involved and you have a higher emotional intelligence starting to go down the brain science path, right? Right. Other things are going to kick in, right? If I know that you as an employer are interested in what's going on in my life and you connect with me and you stay on top of that, the likelihood of the temptation, right, that temptation might diminish. Right. I mean, what, what's your thought? Well, it, it, I think you've got two part two parts to it. Number one, the more emotionally connected we are, the less chance there is that I would elect to do something that would be detrimental. However, if the trigger is strong enough, 
Yeah. People will do dumb stuff. Yeah. Now, then the question becomes, if, if you and I are emotionally connected and I'm going through a, a rough time, it isn't that you're going to do anything negative to me, but you might switch things up a bit so that if there is a place where there is an opportunity, like locking the supply cabinet, if there is a place where I may have an opportunity to do something and that changes, you just kind of put me back between the ethical lines. You took the opportunity away, not in a bad sense, but in a preventative sense, because you can't control what I'll do, right. but you can control my access. Okay. Yeah, true. So where's the balance between, I get all that, what happens if you've got leaders and managers of companies that start thinking about, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start looking for these triggers. And then there becomes this gray area where they start to make an assumption. Meaning I remember years ago when I was going through a divorce, right? That would be a relationship trigger. Sure. And then people started making assumptions about me. Right. Like, like, oh yeah, she's going through a divorce. That's why she's not performing as well. Now that might be a performance issue, but kind of along the same lines of thinking, right? Like, oh, she's going through a divorce issue. Maybe she's going to do X, Y, Z unethically, right? Because as as humans, we have a tendency to to lean towards a negativity bias, right? Absolutely. So do you have any suggestions for how to balance that of like still having your due diligence to make sure these things are not happening in a company while still having the EQ um, to not make an assumption it's going to happen? Gina, let me say this. I think one of the challenges becomes what is the job the person is doing and, and then having the willingness to have a conversation. So let me give you two different examples. Let's say that the person was an office manager. I'm just going to make that simple. Just yeah. an office manager. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the bank statement comes in every month and the checking of the credit card statement comes in every month and I'm the owner. Okay. And I just throw it down on the office manager's desk and you know, take care of it because I, I don't want to deal with that. It's eh mundane stuff. But if I know the office manager is going through a challenge in some form or fashion, I, I may trust that person immensely, but I may need to make one change. Open the documents, take them out and look at them and then put them back and hand it to them. Opening it up doesn't mean I did anything, but if the person who has been accustomed to handling it all by themselves, all of a sudden knows I'm looking that may be a deterrent to them doing something that they shouldn't do or completely switching gears because it's applicable actually in the production company that I have got a young person in the production company who's going through a relationship challenge. Okay. And that has created a reduction in productivity and just this whole kind of zone out experience. Now, I don't need to be up in their personal life, but I can acknowledge you're having a tough time. It's pretty clear you're not performing at the normal pace that you need to perform. You need to take some days off. You need to take some personal days so that you can regroup. Now, what I basically have said is I care enough about you to want to take the personal days Number two, there's only so many personal PTO days that you've got. So if you're taking them, 
I'm not going to pay you forever through your circumstance, but I recognize it. And number three, it says, and I do recognize your performance is being impacted. I'm not criticizing you for that. I'm trying to address the issue, but I'm also raising the awareness that you just can't sit back there in the dark forever on your phone and assume somehow that's an okay action. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And as you were talking about that, the other thing that that comes to mind is <laughs> you could probably talk better about this, but I'm curious as to how, I don't know how to phrase this. It's like common sense, right? Common ethics, like having a, a common sense for ethics. Maybe that's it. I'm just thinking about the person who says, Chuck, what's wrong with taking office supplies? This company's got enough money. Why? What, what's the problem for me taking office supplies? I'm just using that as an example since you brought it up. Where where do we, and, and I've always learned this as a leader, right? If someone's not performing, I have to ask myself, did I give them the tools? Do they have everything that they need? Did I explain it? As I get older, I get more into that, like, get off my grass. Like, you should know these things. The reality is that I don't think a lot of people know what basic ethics are. I could be wrong, but is there some responsibility on the company to actually educate in some way? That's a crazy question, I'm sure. No, it's not crazy at all. In fact, it's kind of funny. There is in the United States sentencing guidelines, criminal sentencing guidelines. It basically says, look, if you're at a senior level in a company, and if you provide ethics training that talks about fraud prevention and having a culture that encourages abiding and paying attention to the law, then if somebody does something stupid, you can't be held criminally liable as a senior exec because mm. you provided the training. Now, that's wonderful. However, the funny part about it is you would think everybody would be like, oh my God, we've got to have ethics training. This would be wonderful. And of course, that is not the number one thing people look at because everybody thinks they're ethical till they're not. Exactly. That is, that's sort of where I'm going with that, right? Like it's, so, it's wrong for Joe employee to do it, but Joe employee might actually be ignorant and not know. And look, Gina, I'm I'm older than you, and I know that with, I'm going to call it four functional generations in the workforce. I know the silent generation, which would be my parents, are probably pretty much out of the workforce. But with the baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, when you look at those four generations, we do not look at things the same. Right. Stealing, taking something that does not belong to you innately ain't right. So there is an element of, I might need to point that out to you once, but if you keep up the behavior, I'm sorry. I look at it like I might've hired the wrong person. Not that it's my job to train you to know what you're supposed to do and what right or wrong is. That's your parents' job. But I need to find people that I think when I hire them, know that on the front end so that I don't have to teach the basics I need to teach the job. Fair, fair, fair enough. And I'm married to a police officer. And I've heard this phrase before, claiming ignorance does, does not make you innocent, uh -huh. right? You, uh -huh. you can't say I didn't know. Yeah, right. No, I didn't. it doesn't exactly work that way. I didn't know. So what's, what's some advice that you might have for companies on how to 
have a more ethical organization or be putting an ethics practice in place versus thinking we never got to think about it? Well, first thing, I'm going to give you a really quick, easy answer. And this kind of goes back to uh, police, by the way. But that is, it always starts at the top. If the person at the top in senior leadership um, acts unethically, is unethical, doesn't care about ethics, you're never going to change anything because the culture at the top basically is not going to support anybody in the mid or bottom levels doing things on an ethical basis. They might tell you to do it, but their actions indicate they don't care. We had a, I think it was the local sheriff here in our community who gets elected to be sheriff, whatever he and, and then decides that with uh, one of the female deputies, there was some sheriff's conference. And so he invited her. I don't want you to be looked over. She was feeling pretty good about this because it's like, it's a good old boy network and you need to move through the ranks. And he looks at her and I don't really want you to feel like you're being left out. I think it would be great for you to attend the conference. And she's feeling like this is really good until it comes down to, but we really have limited budget. So there's only so much money that's going to be allocated for travel. So you'll have to stay with me in my room. Well, it got, it went downhill from there. And as you can imagine, that didn't go over really well. And as you can imagine, he is not the sheriff, got removed from the position, even though he was elected, but got removed by the governor because really you were just a low life sleazebag. Okay. Now the point to that would become, he's not going to have ethics training because he didn't care because he was living like. George Santos in Congress. It's like somehow you must have played Pinocchio whenever he was in like middle school because he's mastered the art of being a hell of a liar. So the advice for companies would be pay attention to it. And for God's sake, and I know this is going to sound really self-serving, but don't have the HR person or the attorney do the ethics program because it is boring. <laughs> and therefore means nothing. It's a box that you check. And that box doesn't change behavior. Amen to that. I had a flash. Hey, can I get an amen? I think back to this goes back to accounting, too, which is ironic. I ended up somewhere in my career path having responsibility for running an organization. And I had full responsibility from everything of the operations. And I had PL res responsibility. And the irony was, I'm like, I cannot escape the accounting piece of this. Oh my gosh, now I have to understand this, right? So, this is when all the Enron stuff was happening. And I happened to work for a publicly traded company. And remember that little thing called Sarbanes Oxley? Oh, yeah, uh, of course. Right. So, that had been put into place. And which was a nightmare, like the, the beginning of it, of having to like, literally, I, I thought my hand was going to break off because I had to sign everything, initial everything, everything had to have my eyes on it. And then I was put in a situation by leadership <laughs> to, hey, when you report those numbers out tonight, because this was an industry where we had to report numbers every night. Right. And I was so uncomfortable with what they were asking me to do that I ultimately quit. Yeah. Because ethically, I was so uncomfortable. I was fearful. I was fearful that something bad would happen to me. Like that was enough motivation for me to get out. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. I had, it's a weird circumstance, but a couple of weeks ago, I had a call from a, a former CPA and 
he, I guess he emailed success following prison and I popped up. So he decided <laughs> to call me. Wasn't exactly a search term I was looking for, but he calls me and he, here's the story. He was a CFO of a company. The CEO and the COO were doing something wrong. And he recognized they were doing something wrong. And it was like, I can't have a part of this. So he quit. Another CFO comes in, same thing, quits. Third CFO comes in, said, pretty good gig. So the now the CEO, the CEO, the COO, and the CFO were all in federal prison. Okay. But that's not the story. The story was the guy that called me, the first CF calls and he said, I'm a convicted felon. I said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, after this all fell apart and the three of them went to federal prison, federal government came back and said, why did you quit your job? Well, I quit my job because I believe those guys were doing something wrong and I didn't want to have a part of it. Now, let me think about what you just said. You recognize they were doing something wrong. You failed to report it and you quit. That's conspiracy to do something wrong. Because if you know about it, you got to talk about it. And so basically they went back and they said, so here's what we're going to do for you. You get to plead guilty to one count of conspiracy, wear an ankle bracelet for a year. You will not put you in federal prison, but you will lose your license as a CPA because you should have known it's your job to report. Conspiracy is the easiest thing to win a conviction on because you knew something and you didn't do something about it. And therefore, he ends up like me being a former CPA, now convicted felon. But in his case, all he knew was accounting. And who is going to hire him to be their accountant, having now been a convicted felon? Well, I won't say where that was, where That's I a good was. Idea. It's what? probably too long. Statute of limitations. Is I, think, I think I'm clear, but it, it's an interesting topic for another time since we're close to time, because then there is the piece of who knew that? Who knew that? I just uh, I'm going to get out. Yep. I'm going to get out. And I don't think it was necessarily anything illegal, but I don't know. Well, the thing about it is in the world we live in today, this is true. Everything is being recorded. Almost everywhere you go in some form or fashion, something is taking place. What used to be when I was 16, if I did something wrong would be, I'm going to get my butt whipped. And then I'm going to have to go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night, visitation. Today, it's captured on a phone someplace. It's instantly news. And the next thing, there is going to be a repercussion from it. So we have to today be more mindful of what's taking place in the world and what we do with that, because the repercussions come so much faster and they are so yeah. much more significant. Yeah, good point. I could talk to you forever and ever. I'll probably ask you to come back one day. Be fine. We'll do it. Because I want to go down the AI rabbit hole. And maybe that's a, another separate conversation if you're open to that. But if people want to connect with you, reach out to you, learn more about this to get their companies more ethical. What are the best ways to connect with you? Well, the easiest way is ChuckGallagher.com. There's not going to be many out there. So ChuckGallagher.com is easy. Or I'm going to make it real easy, Gina. My phone number is 828 244 1400. And I'm absolutely open to somebody emailing me, Chuck at ChuckGallagher.com or calling me on the phone if there's a question that comes up. I love to be able to help people understand that if we can uh, just stay on the straight and narrow, there are some gray areas that will veer off the path. But 
staying on the path uh, is incredibly powerful. Uh, I will also say, however, having veered off the path, as I said before, your history does not create your destiny. So uh, for those of us that are involved in sales in some form or fashion and embracing our gifts, uh, even though we stumble and fall, we can pick ourselves back up. You can either be a victim or a victor, and that is a choice. I love that. Chuck, it was such a pleasure to have you here today on the women your mother warned you about. I hope it lived up to your uh, expectations. Oh, I am just telling you, I like me some powerful women. So that's why. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Chuck. And thank you to our listeners for listening to this episode of The Women Your Mother Warned You About, brought to you by Sales Gravy. And like I said at the top of the show, go and check out salesgravy.university. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll even have some business ethic courses on the platform. You never know. Nearly 300 courses to choose from and growing every single day. Check us out on YouTube if you want to watch this show for facial reactions and all the things. And womenyourmotherwarnedyoubout.com for uh, all of our social media and all of our guests from the past. You can check that out and we'll see you next time. Bye.